So let's generate our motivation. And recall that we and every single other sentient being are exactly the same in wanting happiness and not suffering. That that's our deepest heartfelt wish. And that we're also equal in not really knowing what the cause of happiness is and what the cause of suffering is. And so in our efforts to be happy, instead we often create the causes of suffering by harming others, interfering with other people's virtuous activities and their happiness, having all sorts of wrong views. So there's no difference between ourselves and others in those respects. We have a little bit more fortune, though, at least for a short time during this life. Not forever. In that we've had the amazing privilege of meeting the Buddhist teachings. That can impart to us knowledge of what actually creates happiness and what actually creates suffering so that we know what to practice and what to abandon. So we have that fortune right now and our ability to use it depends a lot on other sending beings. because we need food, clothing, shelter, medicine. There's so many things necessary to stay alive. And these all come through the efforts of other sentient beings. So given how dependent we are, and the kindness and generosity of others. It would be unfathomable to practice the path only for our own benefit and forget about others. So let's aspire for the highest awakening so that we will have the wisdom, compassion, power, skillful means to share the benefit we have right now with all other living beings 
and help them attain full awakening together with us. So between last Friday and this Friday, a lot of questions came in. Okay, so we'll start with some of them. We'll see how far we get. Okay, many of the questions are about karma. So before uh, we, we start on those, yeah, uh, there's three kinds of phenomena. Evident. Now, what are the other two? Hidden. And very hidden. So slightly hidden and very hidden. Okay. So evident phenomena are what? Things that are evident to our senses. Okay. Slightly hidden phenomena. What are those? Hmm? Yeah. To, to initially understand, we need to use logical reasoning. And very hidden phenomena, we have to rely on scriptural authority for those. Okay. When we talk about karma, uh, you know, and get into details about how karma functions, which of the three is karma? Very hidden. Okay, so we have to rely on scriptural knowledge. Okay, so many of the questions that people have asked me, have asked, I will read them. I can give you a few guesses, but I want to encourage the people who ask those questions to find scriptures that give these kind of details. Okay, most of the scriptures that I've seen that talk about karma, um, you know, the it's what has been found in volume two uh, of uh, the foundation of Buddhist practice, and then other texts that talk about specific actions and the kind of results that come from them. But when you listen to these questions, the questions are a little bit different. They want to know exactly the nuts and bolts of how karma works. Okay, the, the mathematical formulas, the um, step-by-step um, ways in which karma works that it is uh, that never changes, and it is always that way in all actions and in all situations. Okay, so these questions very much are, are like that. So I'll just I don't know the orders. I didn't have my glass. I didn't order them, so I'll just pick something up. Okay. So it seems that due to our state of mind near death or other factors like which karmic seed is heaviest, nearest, most habitual, uh, etc., and a karmic seed is activated, and then craving and clinging nourish that seed to become renewed existence, 
the seed on the verge of actualizing a, a rebirth. Is that it? Well, it sounds pretty good, you know, state of mind near death. Now, what exactly is a state of mind near death? When does that start? Yeah, when you're lying in a bed, but what about if you're in an accident and you die immediately? So, you know, what what exactly is a mind near death? Yeah, an hour before you die, half an hour, three minutes, a year. Yeah, some people are lying in bed for a year dying. Some people goes like that. Okay, so I can't tell you what you know, when you're near, what near death is, okay? So our state of mind near death. So I guess that means what you're thinking, what you're feeling, yeah? So depending on that, so that is the first thing, yeah? And other factors like which karmic seed is heaviest, okay? Now, when you're dying, do you know which karmic seed is heaviest? Do you make a decision? Do you have a review of all of your karmic seeds and say that one's heaviest? Mm -mm. Okay. Uh, They usually say that the one that is heaviest will, will ripen, has the chance to ripen first. And if not that, then the one that is most habituated. Okay. So heavy, yeah, that makes sense. Something that you do that's quite strong, strong intention, strong action, you know. But what about you wake up every morning and you set up your altar and it's a habit and you're kind of half asleep and half awake and you enjoy doing it, but you do it every single morning without fail. Okay, Because, and the more we do a certain action, the more powerful that karma becomes. So how many times do you have to set up your altar in the morning for it to become a habituated karma that is going to uh, set, you know, produce another rebirth if the, if you have more than uh, one karma that is the heaviest? If you have one karma that's the heaviest, it might be that one. But if you have two that are pretty close, okay. So, you, you know, you have your scale and you put them and they oh, each weigh nothing. So they're equal in, in, in weight, but we're not talking about that kind of weight when we talk about karma. Okay, so, but anyway, so... First, what's heaviest, then what's most habitual, yeah? And then depending on what's going on around you when you die, that's a thing. But what's going on around you may be total silence. It may be you're in a hospital and the other, your roommate is watching a cowboy movie. It may be that... Uh, you have the death that you dreamed of with all your relatives standing around crying because they don't want to see you go. 
except now you find that a real pain in the neck because you don't want them there because you, you want to just be able to go inside and do this, even though for a long time you prayed to have everybody there and they're all there and they're all apologizing and they're all holding your hand and saying, don't die, we love so much. You're perfect death, but now it's a pain in the neck and you just want them to go away. Okay, so you there's something in your environment, then there's something, the heavy karma, but maybe the habitual karma, okay, and a karmic seed is activated. Now, when is it activated? Yeah, is it activated an hour before you actually die? Or maybe three minutes. Or maybe, you know, there's the eight stages of of dissolution. Is it, uh, you know, when you're having the mirage image? Or is it when you have the white image? Or the black image? Or, you know, exactly when is that activated? Uh, But you have to get craving and clinging in there. But do craving and clinging activate that karma? Or is the karma activated and then craving and clinging strengthen it? Okay. And what does craving comes first? That's on the list. That must come first. So does craving have to cease for clinging to start? Because clinging is an intensified state of craving. But does the eighth one cease for the ninth link to start? And what in the world are you craving? And what are you clinging to? And do the craving and clinging activate that karma or do they come after the karma is activated? And what happens if the karma is activated and then you have a thought of Amitabha Buddha in the middle of that. You had some karma activated to be born as a truck driver. It's, it's not, I'm sorry, it does, the, the karma at the time of death doesn't determine your career. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's what realm you're born into. Okay, so you, you, uh, you have an act, a karma to be activated, uh, let's say, as a, uh, in the animal realm. But then, you know, and it looks like that one is the one that's going to start to ripen. But then you have a thought of Amitabha Buddha. So then what happens? Yeah. Did that karma start to pop up? And then you think about Amitabha and (laughs) it gets clobbered. And what happens to it when it goes down? Can it come up again? But you only thought of Amitabha for a split second, and then you went back to thinking about hot fudge Sundays. Yeah. So that then maybe a karma to be born as a preta is going to happen. So what about the craving and clinging for that? Where, when does that come in? Or did your craving and clinging for it to be born in Amitabha's pure land 
make you think of everything you like. And so that's how the image of the hot fudge sundae came. Okay. So, yeah, the, the basic kind of idea of how, what's going on is here, as this person wrote in the question. But exactly what order it happens in and when it happens and all the different conditions. Yeah, because what happens if you're lying in your bed and then you feel a bug crawling over you? You know, and so you change your thought. Or, you know, so what I'm getting at, if you haven't gotten it already, is that as soon as we start talking about how things happen, we're talking about an incredible number of causes and conditions that somehow come together in one specific formation for a specific instance. And that is what, you know, makes the tenth link where that karma is about ready to ripen. Okay? So we can't pin everything down exactly. And what order, you know, this is kind of a general order. We know a bunch of things are happening at the time of death, but at one particular person's time of death, exactly the order it goes in and how the karma ripens. And you have to be a Buddha to understand all of that. Okay? So, you know, what we're learning is the general outline of how things occur. And I think for our practice, that general outline is probably sufficient to help us, at least for the moment, um, understand what the Buddha's main purpose in teaching karma is, or and the main purpose in teaching the 12 links. So what is the main purpose? What in when the Buddha taught karma, what is the main thing that he's trying to get us to understand and act on? (laughs) Yeah, not being a jerk. Ethical conduct. What? Yeah. So creating the causes for happiness and the path of liberation. And that we've created the, our own experiences, that everything we, ex- we experience is due to our own past actions. Yeah. So to take responsibility for our experiences because we're the ones who created the causes for them. And to be aware of what is going on in our mind and to monitor our mind and uh, see if we have a positive intention or a negative intention. And then, you know, if it's a positive one, to make sure to increase it, make sure we don't get distracted. If it's a negative intention, to be able to to change what we're focusing on. 
Okay, so the exact details and order of things is is not the main point. Yeah, to know approximate details and the way he taught it. Yeah, you know, I mean, for sure, um, the karmic seed and craving and clinging have to be all doing something together. Yeah. But does karmic seed ripen fully before craving and clinging come in? Or do craving and clinging figure out which karma is ripening? Or, you know, there's all sorts of permutations here. Okay. So we have to come back to uh, the permutations are incredibly interesting. But in terms of practice, what are the main points, you know, that the Buddha is trying to get across. Okay. So there's three questions here. The first question says, Tenth link renewed existence is a karmic seed. So it is an abstract composite. Is it a karmic seed? Is it a... Having ceased, the four types of renewed existence that are not the tenth link are different moments or periods in a lifetime. Does this mean that these four types of renewed existence are the five aggregates at these four points and thus are a combination of form and consciousness? Okay, so the question starts out talking about the tenth link, and then it goes to talk about the other four types of renewed existence, which are talking about renewed existence in a totally different context, okay? So those four types of renewed existence, yeah, they are moments in a being's life, yeah? Are they the five aggregates at that at those moments? Is a, are the five aggregates moments? Are moments the five aggregates? Yeah, are and a combination of form and consciousness. What is when you have form and consciousness together? What do you have? Hmm? A person. Okay, so are the four types of renewed existence persons? Are they five aggregates? Okay, let's go on to question two. None of us seem to be able to come up with anything there. During our life, we have one moment of consciousness causing the next, causing the next. Why, at the moment of death, do we need the ripening factors of craving and clinging to nourish renewed existence to then throw another rebirth? Why is this moment explained so differently 
than just one moment of mind causing the next. Okay? So is karma ripening in each moment for one moment of consciousness to bring about the next? Is the entire cause and effect sequence of one mind moment producing the next during one lifetime determined by one projecting karma before death? That is, specific renewed existence. In that it determines our lifespan unless other karmas, karmas ripen to interrupt it. Anybody get an answer for that? Yeah? Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, so this one I can maybe give a stab at. Okay, why at the moment of death do we need ripening factors of craving and clinging to nourish renewed existence? Okay, so why is this moment explained so differently than, uh, you know, we're sitting here in class and one moment of our life leads to a next moment? Why is, the basic question is, why is death such a big deal that it's worthy of, of three links kind of happening at that time. Yeah. Do you think dying is, is the same thing as one moment of your life going into the next moment of your life? You think it's exactly the same? So, so, uh, Is it exactly the same or not? Do you have karma ripening in each moment that's determining your next life? No. Okay. At the time of death, is the karma ripening uh, important? Yeah. So, yeah, craving and clinging throughout our life, they can... And, you know, help to make certain karmas ripening. But is the moment of death more important in terms of, uh, you know, your ability to practice dharma in the future than going from one moment to the next? Yeah. So there's a reason that this time of death is emphasized in the teachings. Okay. Now, is karma ripening in each moment for one moment of consciousness to bring about the next? So what we always say, one moment of consciousness brings about the next moment of consciousness. Does karma make that happen? No. This is the nature of consciousness. Consciousness is an impermanent phenomena. Okay, and any impermanent phenomena is changing moment by moment. Yeah, you don't need karma to make it change. Yeah, the carpet, does it change moment by moment? Does it need karma to, to change and to have a continuum of the carpet? 
I hope not. Okay. Uh oh. <laughs> the carpet is speaking to us. <laughs> okay. So whenever you have any thing that is a product or a, a permanent phenomena, its very nature is to change moment by moment. You don't need karma to make it change. Okay. Okay, so and there's this sentence I don't is the entire cause and effect sequence of one mind moment producing the next during one lifetime determined by that one projecting karma before death. No. The projecting karma before death, you know, is it impacts what realm we're born into. Okay? It's not impacting, you know, it's not the karma that determines how many careers you have. It's not the karma that determines if you have brown or black hair. It's not the karma that determines if your two legs are the same uh, um, height, yeah, is not the karma that, uh, you know, it's just determining what realm you're born into, okay? So remember, there's you can talk about three results of karma are actually four, and that's of karmas that are complete karmas, which means they have the four parts to them, okay? So, the, uh, an impermanent phenomena changing moment by moment is one process of change, a karma ripening to influence what birth we take is a, a totally different process of change. Okay? Okay. So does it determine our lifespan? They say that when we're born, we have a, a karmic lifespan. Now, what, which karma determines that? I don't really know. I would think that that would probably be a one of the completing karmas. Okay, because we have all these completing karmas, you know, that determine things like your color of your hair and... Uh, you know, this kind of stuff, yeah? Which country you're born into, which parents you have, yeah? What topics in school? <laughs> now, I don't know if the karma determines that so much. That might just be how your mind's working in this life, okay? So I would think that just the general karma that influences how long our lifespan is, would be a completing karma, okay? And then they talk about um, if we have a, a very heavy karma, yeah, that cause, uh, causes a, um, what do you, an untimely death, so that interrupts. So you may still have some uh, extra gas in the tank, you know, that karma hasn't all for that one rebirth hasn't all finished, but you die because of this other karma interrupting. And so they say, for example, you know, 
um, that there may be some person in that situation who died because of an untimely karma. So then they still have that karma to be born as a human being, but they may be born as a human being and then the mother may miscarry because they don't have the, um, the karma for a long lifespan because all they have is that little bit left over from the previous lifespan. Okay, so it could be something like that. How does the quality of karma, uh, that karma increases, relate to renewed existence? How is it that the karmic seed of a small action can bring about a bigger result? What is causing the strength of that karmic seed to grow over lifetimes as it travels with the consciousness. Okay, well, here when they talk about these things, they usually use the example of a tree. So you look outside, we have these enormous trees. Yeah, we have the two truths here and the three jewels down at the end of the garden. Okay, so those trees started out with a seed that was probably about this big. Now, what made that seed grow? There were many causes and conditions. Okay. There was, you know, the, the strength, the potential of the seed, you know, what kind of fertilizer... Uh, that whether the seed was born on a slope, what time it fell out of the pine cone, you know, because if it falls out when the earth is parched, it's probably not going to grow. Or if it falls out, you know, right? Yeah, if they fall out, it's the right time, and the squirrel grabs it. Yeah. So there's a lot of different factors going on. And, but you have this teeny seed, and it grows into an enormous tree. Yeah. How did that happen? Now, if you ask most people, they some people would say, God. Meaning, you know, this is really kind of miraculous, isn't it? That something this big can become something that big. If you ask a biologist they'll give you some detailed explanation of how it happens, okay? But whatever explanation somebody gives you, the things they, the, all the explanations have in common is dependent arising. Yeah, the seed is influenced by other factors that make it grow, that make it, you know, I mean, the, the, the tree is going to sprout and then, you know, the wind is going to influence whether it grows straight or whether it goes here or, you know, there's lots of different things that, and so the, the same kind of thing with any kind of karma that ripens in our life, it's going to be working together with an incredible number of not only other karmas, but other impermanent factors that influence it and, uh, you know, mold it so that it becomes 
something, but whatever it becomes is going to change in the next moment. And over time, it's going to really change. Yeah. So don't think, oh, it's a tiny seed, and the next moment it's the big tree. And it's always going to stay as a big tree. Because yeah. wait until the big wind comes. And we had this big tree at the end of the garden, this one with one branch. I mean, it had one part going up. And then it had an enormously thick branch that was a, almost as thick as the trunk, going straight out horizontally and then up. And it looked like that would never break. And then it broke, didn't it? Yeah. So what we're coming back to whenever we look at all these things is is dependent arising and the complexity of dependent arising. Yeah. And to pinpoint every single thing that makes something happen is very difficult. So what we can try and get is the general feeling of how different aspects of dependent arising work. I mean, the same way if you're in a biology class and you want to know how that tree grew from something like this to that, I mean, for the prof, does the prof even know all the different things that were going on to make that tree grow? Yeah. So what are they going to do? They'll give you the basic outline of the general process. Yeah. And then you just know that this is the general process. But you, you're not going to be able to, you know, put every single nice, neat stage with a number on it so that you have it in boxes so that your conceptual mind feels like you have mastery over it. Okay. Because we do not like uncertainty. Yeah, we want to understand exactly how something is. Yeah. So that become a Buddha and then you will understand. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just the idea that one moment of mind producing the next moment of mind is different from the way this is being described at, in the 12 links. Mm. Actually doesn't make sense to me because craving, but craving is happening. I mean, craving, I mean, the next moment of uh, this moment of mind is influenced by my craving. The next moment of mind is influenced by my anger. My anger. The next moment of mind is influenced <laughs> by, oh, suddenly I'm compassionate. So, so it's, it's not accurate to say that one moment of mind produces without any other factors. And then all of a sudden at death, mm-hmm. all these other things blossom. And they're, yeah. they're happening like that all the time. Right. They just don't describe it that way because yeah. it's not the relevant of that particular teaching, I yeah. guess. Yeah. The, yeah. I mean, they're two, they're, we're all talking about the, the mind, but they're two different topics of talking about the mind. Okay. Yeah. And it, and it isn't like what, because One moment of mind becoming the next moment of mind means one moment of clarity and awareness becoming the next moment. You don't need karma to make that happen. You don't need craving and clinging to make that happen. 
okay, where the craving and clinging would come in is you have one moment of, of uh, clarity and awareness and uh, and then you have a moment of attachment that comes in, you know, for you, you want to go play golf. Okay. So the idea comes in your mind. I want to play golf. And then that idea kind of sits there and you contemplate it. You know, I want to play golf. I want to play golf. I want to play golf. And you get craving and clinging. And then at some point, Maybe you'll go play golf or you may decide you're too busy today, so you'll go some other time. And by the time that day arrives, you've forgotten about it, okay? So it's not like even craving and clinging are operating every moment, yeah? Because we're just talking about the nature of clarity and awareness, one moment producing the next moment, okay? I mean, the, we, we talk about the, the, it's called the continuity, uh, the continuity of the similar type. Okay. So you have the table, one moment of table producing the next moment, table producing the next moment. That's just the nature of the table. Okay. We're not talking about the carpenter coming. We need a carpenter coming along every single moment, changing the, the, uh, table into a different shape. Okay, no. Okay. Oh, here's another karmic one. Okay. If a karmic seed is completely purified through the purification practice of an ordinary being, does it have any impact on the mind? such as contributing to cognitive obscurations. And then there's a, a commentary on the question. Okay, so it is clearly stating, stated in Foundation of Buddhist Practice, page 279, page 307, and in Sasara Nirvana Buddha Nature, page 132, that ordinary beings cannot remove the seeds through purification and that only realizing emptiness completely removes them. Though, Foundation of Buddhist Practice, page 307, states, quote, only by realizing emptiness directly is the potency to produce unfortunate rebirths completely eliminated while other passages make it seem as if purification can make it so that the seeds will not bear any result. If it is completely purified and has no impact on the mind whatsoever, what is the basis for saying as an abstract composite that it still exists on the consciousness? This person must have been a Tibetan in previous lives. Long. It's actually not one sentence, so congratulations. <laughs> Broken into the shorter sentences. So I think, I'm not exactly sure what the question is. First of all, cognitive obscurations are a totally different topic, okay? Uh, not totally different, but, you know, that the latencies of afflictions 
and the dualistic view that they produce, those are the cognitive obscurations. Okay, so not the karmic seeds. Yeah. Um, so ordinary beings, depending on the, um, you know, the, the degree of our regret, the num- uh, how, you know, the strength of our determination not to do it again, all these four opponent powers, okay, over a period of time, doing the four opponent powers many times, I cannot tell you how many times, I cannot tell you on a scale of one to ten how, uh, you know, what is the minimum degree of intensity your regret has to be or the minimum degree of intensity for your um your determination not to be a, you know, and, uh, and I, I, I don't know what happens if you have a determination not to do it again. And then some situation happens in which, you know, you could get some benefit this life from just doing this action and nobody would really know. So your intention not to do it again is kind of out the window, you know. So you do the action, you still look like you're a holy being, you know. Because, you, you know, you want that, that boon for this life. Yeah, I never want to do this karma again, unless. <laughs> when you're making the determination never to do it again, you never say unless. Okay, when the opportunity comes up, Oh, then there's many unlesses. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, if you purify strong enough, they they say that it's like burning the karmic seed. Yeah. So the potency of the karmic seed to bring a result has been burnt. So you have like a burnt seed. Yeah. So this, if you have a burnt seed, you still... There's no potency, but there's still a burnt seed. Now, the problem comes here that all these seeds on the mind stream are not physical. So when you destroy the potency, the question is, what's the burnt seed that's hanging on there? Okay. I have no idea. Do any of you have any idea? But it does make sense to me that you, that you need to realize emptiness directly for that burnt part that isn't going to ripen into a result anyway because it's burnt, for it to be removed from the mind stream altogether. Okay, Because as long as you still have a mind that is operating under ignorance, you know, that that uh, that burnt part is going to be on the mind because the mind hasn't realized emptiness yet. And it's not like you realize emptiness in one moment and then in the next moment all your burnt seeds are gone, you know. It's like you, you had a cluster bomb and, no, you had this vacuum bomb, you know, and and... All your burnt seeds got sucked out and disintegrated. Yeah. 
Okay, so that's all I can say about that one. Okay, here's some more about Friday teaching. You mentioned that the mind is dormant during deep sleep. Sometimes we are aware we are cold and cover ourselves up while sleeping. How is this possible if the mind is dormant? Does the sensation of cold wake us out of deep sleep? Or do we only feel the sensation of cold after the mind comes out of deep sleep? I recommend that to answer that question, that you look at your own experience. Yeah, look at what happens when you feel cold when you're sleeping. If you first woke up and then felt cold, or if the cold made you wake up. Okay? Because I think that is something that could vary person by person. Do the different philosophical tenant systems describe how the 12 links project a rebirth differently. For example, Yogacara tenant system and Pali tradition tenant system. The way they talk is pretty much the same. Way, way or where they're going to be different is uh, how they define the first link ignorance. That's going to be a major difference between them. And then exactly what the third link of consciousness is where the seed is placed. That's going to be different. And there could be some difference in terms of exactly what's going on as the karmic seed is ripening, but I can't think of exactly what those differences would be, but there could very well be some differences. Okay, then third uh, one. According to Yogacarya tenets, there are eight consciousnesses. Does that mean that when the mind stream with eight consciousnesses leaves the body, five consciousnesses drop away and just the sixth, seventh, and eighth consciousness go into the bardo? The eighth consciousness is the alaya consciousness. So when we try to remove grasping at the self, uh, is it the grasp? Uh, it's the grasping at the seventh consciousness. What about the sixth consciousness? Okay, so um, I can and uh, give you some guesses about how Yogacara might respond to these questions. But I also have to say that we don't follow here the Yogacara tenant system. Okay, we're following the Prasangika tenant system. Yogacara is very um, popular in China, and it uh, has some influence in, in different schools of Tibetan Buddhism as well. Okay, so just uh, how when you get to eight, yeah. And, and also there's one Chinese school that talks about nine consciousnesses. Okay. But let's just stick with eight. Okay. Um, so they have the five sense consciousnesses, the mental consciousness. So that's together all the different tenet systems assert that. Then let's go from the sixth to the eighth. The eighth is what's called the foundation consciousness or the mind basis of all, the alaya consciousness. And this is said to be like a storeroom consciousness, okay? Now, 
I don't know whether it looks like our storeroom downstairs. I don't know if it's organized, if the seeds are organized by date, by size, by uh, you know place they're going to ripen. Um, I can't tell you the, the organization, okay, on the foundation consciousness. But there's lots of different seeds, okay? And some of the seeds are karmic seeds that are going to influence where we're born, what we're reborn as, and experiences we have during in our life. But there also are other seeds, like the seed to um, to see the subject and object as different entities, or the seed to see things as existing by their own uh, characteristics as the basis of the uh, designated term that they have. So those are also different kinds of seeds. So it's you have a whole bunch of dis- different seeds in the storehouse consciousness. So that so the sixth one was the mental consciousness. Then you the eighth one's the storehouse. Then the seventh one, this is the naughty consciousness. Okay, this is the one that's the problem. It's the afflictive mentation. And the afflictive mentation, yeah, kinda regards the eighth consciousness in some way, you know, or references the eighth consciousness and then thinks that the eighth consciousness is a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. Okay? Yeah. I think sixth consciousness is that's so much easier. Okay. So the, the seeds, the karmic seeds, are put on the eighth consciousness. The seventh consciousness is operates during life and it's going to operate at death too because it's the one that's the grasping at uh you know referencing the eighth consciousness grasping as a self-sufficient substantial existent person okay so when we try to remove grasping at the self yeah what we're trying to overcome is the seventh consciousness. And by doing that, the eighth consciousness also gets purified, as does the mental consciousness. And the eighth consciousness turns into a type of wisdom. I can't remember which one of the five wisdoms it becomes. And I can't remember what happens to the seventh consciousness. Anybody remember? I have it written down somewhere. Um, okay, uh, do the five sense consciousnesses drop away at the time of death? No, I think they would be, they would be dormant. And, but actually we, we change, uh, you know, we change five aggregates when we go from one life to the next. So you may have the sense consciousnesses of a donkey in one life and the sense consciousnesses of, you know, a human being in, in the next life. So those are different sets of five aggregates. <laughs> Can we stop the questions now, please? <laughs> okay.